0: Over the years, serving as a pastor, I've attended many installations and ordinations, even preached a few of them. And often the scriptures are call stories. They're usually about Abraham, Moses, Esther, Ruth, Peter, Paul. You've heard them. And so when I asked Adam what scriptures did he want me to use today, you just heard them. <laughs> in these scriptures, both Amos and Jesus do not mince any words. There is rage in Amos's words and Jesus's words incite rage. So just to give you fair warning, if as I go through this sermon, a little rage, maybe some ire, starts to bubble up. I'm gonna to point to Adam and say, he started it. <laughs> so, let's start with the prophet Amos. While we love to quote that well-known verse, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, it would be disingenuous for us to skip over the preceding verses. For in these earlier verses, we hear Amos express God's rage toward God's people. I hate. I despise. I take no delight in your gatherings. I will not accept nor even look at your offerings. Take away your noises, your voices, and your harps, for I will not listen. Yikes. Clearly, the people of God are not as fixed in their relationship with God as they believe. So how is it that God's chosen people got to this place, this place where they warranted such ire from God? From the very beginning of the book of Amos, and it's not very long, the prophet details over and over and over again the numerous ways that the people have wandered from God, while they have prospered economically and militarily, where they believed that they had made it because of their faith in God, but Amos points out that the people have misused their power and their wealth by taking actions against the poor and the needy and being very indifferent to their suffering. The people are called out for the absence of the very foundation of the communal and individual life God expects of God's people. Righteousness and justice. So let's be clear when we hear Amos' words, he's not talking about festivals and assemblies and grain and animal and musical offerings in and of themselves. He is pointing out that religious assemblies, sacred music, and elaborate sacrifices are meaningless without righteous living and just dealings, especially with the downtrodden and the poor. So when we hear these scriptures in church, any chance that we're squirming in our pews? Do Amos's fiery words ring true for us? Can we see ourselves, our church, our community, in this Hebrew scripture of people deserving God's rage? Preacher and public theologian, Ernest Kim Hackett, talks about white Christianity, those of us who are in predominantly white churches, when she writes, as each individual reads scripture, They see themselves as the princess in every story. They are Esther, never Xerxes or Haman. They are Peter, but never Judas. They are the women anointing Jesus, never the Pharisees. They are the Jews escaping slavery, never Egypt. For citizens of the most powerful country in the world who enslaved both native and black people to see itself as Israel and not Egypt when studying scripture is a perfect example of what she calls Disney princess theology. And it means that as people in power, they have no lens for locating themselves rightly in scripture or society and it has made them blind and utterly ill-equipped to engage issues of power and injustice. It is some very weak Bible work. Are we willing to engage in difficult and faithful Bible work? Are we willing to truly listen to God's word to us and about us as it is found in scripture? And borrowing from AA, are we brave enough to make a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves, our churches, our communities, when we do engage with Scripture? Without doing this work, it is so easy to sit comfortably in our pews, hear Scripture through the lens of Disney princess theology, and feel good about being one of Jesus' beloved. Yet, without doing this work, I would argue that we cannot realize Amos' scriptural but that we hear in verse 24. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. How often do we just dole out waters like coming from an eyedropper? How often do we take our righteousness from a stream that is stagnant with water, that is filled with our political and cultural views? Can we not hear Amos as an agent of reformation calling us to this difficult work as he points out God's rejection of religious rituals that are empty of righteousness and justice that God demands? The Message Bible puts God's demands most bluntly. Do you know what I want? I want justice, oceans of it. I want fairness, rivers of it. That's what I want. That's all I want. Does the church want what God wants? Are we willing to do strong Bible work and hear what the Spirit is saying to the church today? You know, Jesus engaged in some pretty strong Bible work, especially with the people at the Nazareth synagogue. It didn't go over very well. In Luke's telling, Jesus is a good local boy, regular synagogue attender, and he does what all good religious Jewish boys did. He took part in the service and he's going to read scripture and he's going to comment on it. And in this setting, Jesus is among his friends. He's among his family, his relatives. He's at home here. And on this particular day, Jesus reads from the prophet Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to um, Proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What I find fascinating is the people did not find that an offensive comment. In fact, we hear that all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. But Jesus expands on what this fulfillment of scripture will look like. And it becomes clear it will encompass far more than a chosen people of God, family, and friends circle. Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown, Jesus says. Then using examples from the Hebrew scriptures, scriptures I might tell you that were regularly read in that synagogue where Jesus sat, Jesus points to looked down upon outsiders as models of faith from Israel's very own history, the widow of Zarephath and Naaman the Syrian. The truth about who Jesus is, the fulfillment of Scripture, is that He is the fulfillment for Jew and Gentile alike, for insiders and outsiders. He is the fulfillment for all who are poor, captive blind or oppressed. He is the fulfillment that brings rule breaking and boundary crossing and ferocious and extravagant love to the world. But when the people hear this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of the town and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they might hurl him Off the cliff. Those are some angry parishioners. (laughs) I don't know of any rabbis or pastors who have met with a similar fate, but I do know of pastoral calls that have been dissolved because the pastor's theology wasn't conservative enough or liberal enough Pastoral calls dissolved because the pastor was being too political from the pulpit. Pastoral calls dissolved because the pastor actually had the gall to support Black Lives Matter. Pastoral calls dissolved because the pastor wanted to welcome LGBTQI folks into the church, into the pews that you're sitting in. Pastoral calls dissolved because of COVID protocols implemented in the congregation. I know pastors who have left pastoral ministry altogether and, or who are seeking other vocations just to get out of what feels like never-ending conflict. We are not the church at its finest. And I'm just talking about my tribe, the situations I know about in the Presbyterian Church. But there's other stories. The Evangelical Church is Breaking Apart is a recent Atlantic article written by Peter Werner. It could just as easily be written about the Presbyterian Church. He writes, the root of the discord lies in the fact that many Christians have embraced the worst aspects of our culture and our politics. When the Christian faith is politicized, churches become repositories of, not of grace, but of grievances. Places where tribal identities are reinforced, where fears are nurtured, and where aggression and nastiness are sacralized. The result is not only wounding the nation, it is having a devastating impact on the Christian faith. He quotes Mark Labberton, president of Fuller Theological Seminary, who said, Too many Christians have domesticated Jesus by their resistance to his call to radically rethink our attitude toward power, ourselves, and others. We want Jesus to validate everything we believe, often as if he never walked the face of this earth. What we are witnessing can be explained more by sociology than Christology. writer Anne Lamont puts it most succinctly: You can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out God hates the same people you do. I agree with Wenner when he wrote, countless acts of kindness, generosity, and self-giving love are performed every day by people precisely because they are Christians. Their lives have been changed and in some cases transformed by their faith. But I can recognize that while also recognizing the wreckage around us. So why would I speak of such things on this festive day of Adam's installation? (laughs) Because pastors are on the front lines of this conflict. Adam is on the front line of this conflict. The other pastors in this room are on the front lines of this conflict. And you have called Adam to this difficult work. You have not called him to tell you what you want to hear, to align with your political viewpoints and to make sure that you can sit in your pew next to like-minded people. You have called him to help you do the necessary, difficult, and uncomfortable Bible work that we as Christians must do. You have called him to lead you to bring the good news to the poor, release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and freedom to the oppressed. You have called him to help you to live as beloved disciples of Jesus Christ, resting upon God's call, call, God's demand for righteousness and justice. By far, the most expensive part of my church is me. The pastor, writes Melissa, Melissa Flor Bixler, pastor of Raleigh Mennonite Church. My salary comes from the collective decision of a group of people to hire someone like me to lead the church. Often that means saying difficult things making space for conflict and calling us back to the life of Jesus. If I give people exactly what they want or what conforms to the logic that dominates the other aspects of their lives, I'm not doing my job very well. I want Adam to do his job very well. You want Adam to do his job very well. And as someone who attends this church, I want us to let him do that. But I also want us, not this, just folks at South Jacks, all of us, to be the church of Jesus Christ that we are called to be. I would like us to hold one another accountable to be that faithful church, especially when we, as a church, Choose what is easy and expedient over what may be difficult, but yet faithful." Paraphrasing her words, I would hope that with Adam as our pastor, we are carving out space to rest our lives in the care of the living God. I hope that meeting this God forges the way into the forgotten places among the forgotten people where God is already at work. I hope that Adam can be a pastor who helps us set down our lives here among God's good news to the poor. And I hope That we can be the faithful church of Jesus Christ, embodying God's justice and righteousness in all that we do. And with the help of God, may it be so. Amen.